Welcome to everyone joining us today. We will get started in just a few minutes. So thanks for everyone joining. We'll just wait another minute and let folks get into the room before we get started. Welcome to today's Journal Club webinar. My name is Rachel Dager. I'm the Executive Director of SNEB and glad you're joining us for the session today. Um, we've had a couple webinars on Mondays, but this is actually the second in the Journal Club series uh, focused on Digitech and nutrition, uh, current research on the use of technology in nutrition education and behavior and research and practice. Uh, we thank the um, SNEB's Digitech division uh, for helping organize this series this spring. Um, just a few uh, housekeeping items. I'm going to go ahead and drop the slides for today's presentation in the chat box so you can download those and follow along. We will take questions at the end of the webinar presentation, so please type those in the Q&A or the chat block uh, so we can moderate questions to our presenter. Uh, when I close the webinar today, there'll be a short survey. We appreciate your feedback on this session as well as ideas for other webinars. And then watch for an email follow-up should come Wednesday of this week uh, with a link to the recording, uh, your CEU certificate that you're earning for your live attendance, as well as a handout, uh, again, for today's presentation. So I will turn things over to our moderator, Dr. Kristen DiFilippo, is teaching assistant professor at the University of Illinois. Thank you, Rachel. Today I get to introduce our speaker. Dr. Telema Briggs received his PhD in nutritional sciences from Rutgers University, New Brunswick. His research focused on discerning the behavior change capabilities of commercially available smartphone nutrition apps used for weight management with the intention of determining their appropriateness to be utilized in professional dietetic practice. He is a recipient of the University and Louis Bevere Dissertation Completion Fellowship in recognition of excellence for is this doctoral research and is a member of the adjunct faculty for the Department of Nutritional Sciences at Rutgers University. We are excited to have him here today um, to share on his work, feature availability comparison in free and paid versions of popular smartphone weight management applications. I want to thank Dr. Briggs for joining us and at this point I can pass it over to him. Thank you so much, Kristen. Thank you, Rachel. Um, I'd like to say thank you for inviting me for uh, today's presentation. Uh, it's an honor to uh, present this this paper here. Uh, I was just sharing with Rachel earlier. This is uh, this is my baby. This is my very first publication ever, and so I'm excited to 
uh, to present this here. And this is actually the journal that I published in as well. So again, just it feels like coming home and I wanna extend my thanks and my gratitude for inviting me to, to speak about this paper. It really uh, means a lot to me. Uh, and so today I'm going to be talking about that said paper, the feature availability comparison in free and paid versions of popular uh, smartphone and smartphone weight management applications or apps for sure. Um, and just to kind of give you a rundown of what we're going to be talking about today, I'll introduce the topic briefly. Uh, also, the paper will then go into the study methodology, uh, discuss figures and results, and then conclusions, implications, and then we will open the floor for questions. Uh, before we begin, these are some of the nutrition education competencies that uh, I hope to achieve or hope that you will be able to achieve from listening to today's presentation. Um, and here are my disclosure statements as well. And so without further ado, let me go ahead and just jump right into it. Uh, and so as nutrition professionals and dietitians uh, and those who are familiar with nutrition in the field, we, we know that um, if not most of it, a good part of our work is dedicated to resolving this problem of obesity. Uh, it remains a very significant uh, public health challenge here in the United States and also globally. Here in the U.S., adult obesity prevalence this is from as a as of 2018 was around 42%. Uh, it's predicted to be at around 50% uh, within just seven years, around 2030. And so we can see with this projected increase in obesity, uh, there's still a lot of work to be done. Um, and there's good reason for us to do this work as well. Uh, obesity is not only deadly, but it's also costly. Uh, so the medical cost of adult obesity in the US average is around 147 to $210 billion per year. Uh, and as we know, obesity is also attributed and associated with frequently co-diagnosed uh, comorbidities, such as cardiovascular disease, uh, diabetes, hypertension, sleep apnea, certain types of cancer, and stroke. Uh, and so it's really pertinent for us to see what we can do to kind of address this problem. Uh, as we look at obesity as a problem, we also know that obesity is, is a multifactorial and, and largely intersectional diseases. There are a lot of different factors that contribute to obesity, uh, ranging from biological factors, uh, physiological factors, social economic status, cultural status, um, psychological and genetic factors as well. Uh, so there, being that there are large intersectional disciplines that intersect with obesity as far as um, things that influence it, uh, we have to take an approach to obesity that allows us to address each of these intersections. Um, and while we look at surgical and medical interventions that may help with maybe some of the more biological or physiological aspects of dealing with obesity, uh, lifestyle modifications through behavior change is consistently recognized as the best suited approach uh, for sustainable weight management outcomes for most individuals. As we look at uh, the behavioral change aspect of how we look at obesity and using uh, behavior change to address obesity and weight management, uh, there are some inherent uh, positives and negatives when we look at this approach. Uh, and so one of the main positive aspects of looking at behavior change as opposed to surgical or medical interventions is relatively low implementation costs. Uh, however, there is always been a historical issue with compliance. Um, <clears throat> and so to remedy this, uh, we've started to look at technology and look at ways that technology can kind of meet and fill in the gap when it comes to compliance. Um, and so interventions supported by information technologies have been shown capable of improving compliance with behavior change interventions. Uh, and so these tools that we use to help with, um, help with compliance with behavior change, um, we generally call these mobile health technologies or M health technologies for short. Uh, and they include a wide range of devices. So these include uh, blood pressure monitors. If you're wearing anything like an Apple Watch or a Fitbit that can track physical activity. Um, if you're using a glucose monitor, a continuous glucose monitor um, as well. And even some of the apps on our phones uh, can be considered part of that lexicon of mobile health technologies uh, that we use to altogether help to improve compliance with behavior change based interventions. Uh, and so what I or what we generally like to call these tools, in addition to being called mobile health technologies and behavior change supporting systems. 
And so when we look at these nutrition apps, when we look at smartphone diet and nutrition apps, we can also make a rationalization uh, in including them in this uh, term of mobile health technologies. Uh, and so when we look at the diet and nutrition uh, smartphone apps, they come in a variety of different flavors. Uh, and so we have apps that are dedicated to grocery and register uh, grocery and restaurant assistance where they help individuals uh, either make decisions around what foods they want to purchase or what foods they want to uh, have at a restaurant, if it's particularly if they're following a particular diet plan. Um, there are also healthy cooking and, and recipe apps um, that actually allow you to import recipes from different websites from the web um, and also to allow you to, uh, again, uh, pick foods that fit that dietary preference. Um, some of the more familiar kind of apps that at least this study will be featuring focusing on include those that track anthropometrics and physical activity. Um, and so these are apps that can track your steps, also apps that uh, can track how and, and how and what ways you're, you're being physically active, so whether you're cycling or weightlifting. Um, but the kind of apps that we're gonna be focusing on in this study, the apps that we focus on this study rather, are what we call self-monitoring calorie tracking apps, where the user self-reports their intake throughout the day based upon goals that they've set, um, whether it's weight loss, weight maintenance, um, or weight gain. And so when we look at uh, demonstrations of use of, of how these apps have been um, utilized in research as far as improving uh, nutri nutrition-related outcomes, um, Several studies have come to mind. So there's a study uh, done by Reiko Rodriguez et al, um, where they look at comparing just dietetic counseling versus um, dietetic counseling with the assistance of an app. And those that had the counseling but the app saw greater decreases in waist circumference, uh, BMI and adiposity estimations. Uh, another study looking at uh, app versus paper-based diaries by Turner McGreevy uh, saw a reduction in energy intake and lower BMI during a six-month follow-up. Um, and then lastly, uh, another example, an app versus website um, plus paper-based diary by Carter et al. study uh, saw overall improve, improved adherence uh, to weight management interventions. And so in these three studies here, just for example, we see that when we add technology into this, um, we can see a greater adherence to uh, weight management recommendations. And we also see greater outcomes uh, when it comes to uh, outcomes of, of weight loss or, or weight management, successful weight management in terms of weight circumference, BMI, and, and reduction of energy intake. Uh, we also see that these apps outside of being useful for weight management can also be useful in managing nutrition-related chronic diseases. And so there are apps that are dedicated to, uh, for instance, uh, the management of diabetes. So Blue Star Diabetes is an app uh, developed by WellDoc. Uh, there is an app that is also based in Australia called Food Switch. Um, the US version is also uh, dedicated to cardiovascular management. There are other apps that are dedicated for uh, chronic kidney disease. So NKF or My Food Coach, which helps individuals uh, select food preferences or select foods within their preference that are abiding by um, how to appropriately manage um, chronic kidney disease, uh, cardiovascular disease, and a host of other uh, chronic diseases here. And so we can see here um, that there's a lot of different uses for these apps and these nutrition apps. Um, and as the field of these apps continues to grow, we should probably expect to see that these apps will target more chronic diseases as well. And so as these apps uh, seem to be great at doing a number of different things and they seem to be really helpful, um, there are some limitations. So these, this technology is not perfect. Uh, and so some significant limitations with these kind of apps include a lack of evidence-based behavior change content, uh, which we'll get into in a bit as we go through this study. Uh, there's also a lack of evidence, a lack of adherence to evidence-based practice guidelines um, as well. Uh, there's also concerns for data privacy. So these apps collect a load of information. Where that information goes, who has access to it is also a very uh, limiting concern. Uh, and there's also, when we look at the way that these apps are studied, uh, there really isn't a strong design uh, for efficacy as we, as we look at these apps. Uh, and so these limitations together have left many uh, registered dietitians and nutritionists not really willing to endorse the use of these apps in professional practice, uh, despite how helpful these apps may seem to be um, 
at face value. Uh, despite that, uh, consumers are still using these apps. So whether dietitians endorse these apps or not, uh, people are still taking it upon themselves to use this technology. Uh, and so in a survey done in 2017, where they asked participants, they're willing to use an app to track or monitor the nutritional intake, uh, 42% of the respondents either responded saying that they use the apps regularly, occasionally, or have tried them at least once, while another 39% of them said that you could imagine using them in the future. And so an overwhelming majority of people have either used these apps or have an interest in using these apps in the future. When we look at this uh, economically, uh, as far as market growth projections are concerned, it's expected to grow around 117% uh, within the next five years. And projected annual revenue spill is expected to be around $7 billion. And so as people continue to use this and we get money continuing to flow into uh, the use of these tools, um, it, it should behoove us to actually get to at least understand what people are using even if we don't endorse them as nutrition professionals and educators. And, and while we look at some of the inherent uh, lack of evidence that we see in these apps, um, as nutrition professionals, we see that if there's a lack of evidence, there should be also an abundance of caution as well. And, and as we can see here, there's some stories from some news clips, uh, news clips that I've, I found on the internet that show that uh, consumers are starting to kind of get hip to, you know, okay, well, this app is, you know, it says it's doing this, but it's not really doing what it's supposed to be doing, or there's, there's some kind of risk that's associated with this. And uh, some of the more popular apps have been experiencing the brunt of this. So um, Noom has been in the, the headlines for a couple of years now, as far as um, some of the, the practices that they use for their health coaches that they have on staff. Um, my fitness pal and Weight Watchers have also come under the radar as well. Uh, and so the rise in popularity, uh, despite their lack of evidence and content brings into question concerns of whether these apps are appropriate for all people or whether there are certain aspects of the population who might be better suited to use these apps. Uh, there's also safety and efficacy concerns here. Um, some of the more recent headlines that we see with these apps are associated with include eating disorders and how some of these apps might distort an individual's uh, preference as far as what foods they should be eating um, and whether they should be using an app all the time to track their food. Um, so this is another concern and one of the reasons why um, I embarked on this project. And so before I get into the paper, I want to explain the, the larger vision of this, this project that the paper um, sat in. And so um, this was all originally part of my, my dissertation project that I completed at Rutgers. Uh, and so my the goal of this project was to overall clarify the understandings of the how these apps work in the functional sense, um, and also to address two critical deficits, if we could. Uh, the lack of evidence adherence to evidence-based guidelines, so looking at how some of the evidence-based guidelines, particularly those uh, that are produced by the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics, whether these apps actually adhere to those guidelines or not. Um, and also looking at the poor inclusion of behavior change content. Uh, and so being that these apps are supposed to inspire behavior change, it would make sense that these apps would at least follow some kind of, of, of theory or theories in order to, to spur that behavior change. Uh, with, with that being said, our big picture for this project or a big picture question uh, was to see at what capacity these apps would be appropriate for uh, being useful in some aspect of the clinical or private dietetic practice, um, specifically whether they would fit within the, uh, the lexicon of the nutrition care practice, whether that's in the diagnosing aspect of that assessment, uh, intervention, or monitoring and evaluation step in that process and cycle. And so this is... Uh, a vision of what uh, this project entails. So there were three manuscripts that were produced from this large project, um, all related to apps. And so uh, the first study we were looking at essentially looked at what were in these apps, the features that were found in them. So this is our feature assessment study, which will be uh, the paper that I'll be talking about today. Uh, from there, we springboarded to two other paper topics. Uh, so we looked at, took a closer look at the adherence to evidence-based guidelines, particularly for weight management, being that a lot of people are using these apps for weight management. Uh, we thought it would make sense to see how well these apps paired with um, some of the professional guidelines that were offered by the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics. 
And then as we looked at uh, the behavior change aspect of this and looking at how well these apps um, adhere to some of those behavior change strategies, we wanted to look at and see how these apps um, were able to address behavior change and whether they were even addressing them in the ways that would be appropriate being that it's, it's looking at behavior change in technology versus behavior change in a uh, more in-person setting. So looking at how those, uh, somehow the definitions of behavior change contracts sometimes change a bit when we go from different modes from in-person to technology and seeing if the apps actually kind of follow through in that kind of shift uh, in modality. So those were basically a synopsis of the last two papers that were included in this project. Um, but today's presentation focuses on our first paper. Uh, the feature availability comparison of free and paid versions of popular smartphone and weight management apps. Uh, it was published in the September 2021 uh, journal edition, uh, volume 23, issue nine. Also include a QR code for those of you who may not be familiar with the paper. Um, so you can scan that and, and take a look at the article at your leisure. And so as we jump into the brief background on the paper, um, we had two out outstanding objectives for this paper. Uh, we wanted to be able to characterize general features and capabilities of free and premium upgraded versions of the apps. Um, and we also wanted to discern whether there were associations between the availability of certain features and user indicators of app satisfaction. So this included uh, metadata of the popular apps, looking at how many downloads these apps had, costs of the apps and things of that nature. Uh, when speaking of the analysis between the free and premium versions of these apps, and again, considering the intersections of obesity uh, factors, uh, we wanted to see if there was a difference between what was offered in premium versions of an app versus free versions of an app, uh, knowing that there is a majority of people, or at least a significant portion of people who are only purchased, who are only looking at the free versions of the apps and are not going to purchase the premium versions. And so in this study, we wanted to see, well, if you're only getting the free version, what are you missing when you get the premium versions? Are you missing features that can greatly impact uh, in, in, in a person's, in, excuse me, in an individual's ability to lose weight successfully? Are there features and, and nutrients that are maybe tracked in the premium versions that may not be tracked in the free version? Uh, are there behavior change features that might be featured in the premium versions that we're not getting in the free version? And so that was one of the, the main reasons why we wanted to look at both uh, free and premium versions of these diet apps. So as we go into the methodology, um, here is a, a brief synopsis of how we uh, found our apps. So as we said earlier, uh, there are a, a great number of apps available, uh, and I'm sure the number has increased greatly since the time that this study has been published. Um, we looked at apps both in the Apple Store and Google Play Store uh, using our keywords diet and weight loss. Um, there were some limitations with both of these search engines, and so, for instance, Apple only displays 500 apps um, with, per search term. Uh, so even though there may be more than 500, we're actually well over a thousand apps uh, that were dedicated to nutrition and weight loss and diet uh, in Apple. We only saw the first 500. Uh, similarly to Google, um, there were probably comparably the same number of apps that are available in Google and same in, uh, for, for Apple, uh, but it had a similar kind of limitation where they only show, showed uh, the first 250 apps. So altogether, uh, there were only 750 observable apps, uh, not discounting that there are some apps that are available in both platforms. Uh, as we went through that, there's uh, some specific inclusion criteria that we uh, were looking at. So we wanted to make sure that we were getting apps that were available in both uh, the Google and Apple platform devices. Uh, we also wanted to look at apps that were being used. So if they had less than 500,000 downloads, they were excluded from this study. Uh, we also wanted to focus on apps that were dedicated to weight management. So apps that were more focused on specific uh, chronic disease management were excluded. Um, and apps who weren't necessarily concerned with weight management as a primary outcome were also excluded. Uh, we also wanted to exclude apps that didn't necessarily focus on, um, that focus on a, just a single dietary approach. So for instance, there were apps that focused on the ketogenic diet. We didn't want to necessarily just isolate those apps and just focus on that. Uh, so those apps were excluded. We wanted app, 
apps that allowed users to choose whatever type of dietary approach they wanted to use to manage their weight. And then lastly, we wanted to include apps uh, that were regionally centered to the United States. So we did have an app that was actually based in India uh, that we had to exclude from the study because the, the databases just didn't utilize anything here uh, in the US. And so it didn't make sense to include that here in this study. As for the app feature categories that we evaluated in this study, there were five. Um, so the first one and probably the one that uh, we gained the most insight from, of course, was dietary intake. Uh, so some of the features that were available here were calorie intake tracker, um, access to a nutritional database, barcode scanners, uh, and things of that nature. Going on to the anthropometric measurements, uh, this is where we looked at uh, height, weight, uh, different types of circumferences, whether it was waist, bicep, thigh. Um, there was also physical activity. So a lot of these apps that also uh, tracked what you were taking in calorically were able to also uh, track caloric expenditure. Uh, and so we were also interested in looking at that. Um, we were also interested in looking at and being able to identify behavior change strategies that were being utilized by these apps as well. So uh, self-monitoring, motivational interviewing, uh, and different type of constructs were evaluated. Uh, and then lastly, we were looking at meta app data. So we wanted to gather data on, again, uh, how, uh, how many downloads and installations these apps had, uh, how the users rated the apps, the versions of the apps, um, the diversions of these apps greatly differ as they continue to upgrade. Um, so those are some of the things we noted uh, in our feature category assessments. Um, as far as how we went about evaluating these apps, uh, so we were able to first uh, review these apps initially uh, to determine if there was any kind of difficulty between uh, or differences between the, the apps. And so there were some apps that we found were pretty easy to kind of look at and evaluate. Um, they were pretty straightforward but there were some other apps that were actually really intricate and we had to kind of factor that in as we were going through and reviewing these apps. Uh, and so in total, we ended up reviewing around 15 apps. Um, and so what we did was we actually uh, divided these apps three per, uh, per, per reviewer. And we also assigned them based on uh, level of uh, difficulty as far as burden for review. Uh, and so each reviewer received an app that was categorized as low, moderate, and high burden of review in order to, to make sure that everybody was more or less evaluating in, to the same capacity for these apps. Uh, as far as the features, it was evaluating the features, it was pretty much straightforward. Um, we used a, a coding response in our survey where we, if uh, a reviewer saw a, a feature, they would designate that as yes. If they didn't see it or if it was absent, it would be no. Um, we also made note of whether features required in-app purchases um, in, our in, our, in our data collection. So we definitely we did that. Um, and then we also made sure that if we didn't understand something, if we weren't sure we were able to clarify that um, after we kind of reviewed all the apps. Uh, so following the review of the free versions of the apps, we then downloaded and purchased the upgraded versions to the premium versions. And then we went back to verify that all of the in-app purchases were in fact uh, then available in the paid premium versions of the app. All right, so now moving on to our results and our figures. Uh, so this is our, our first table here, and this is just basically showing um, some of the metadata that we've gotten from these apps and we collected. Uh, and so as you can see here, uh, we do have some more popular apps um, that you might know of. So my Fitness Pal, uh, Noom, and Weight Watchers being maybe some of the more popular ones that if you name drop, people go like, oh yeah, I've heard of that one before. Um, <clears throat> and you can tell by the number of installations here, um, some of these apps are in fact very popular here. So my Fitness Pal has around 50 million installations. Uh, Noom and Lose It have around 10 million. Uh, Weight Watchers also 10 million. Um, <clears throat> And so when you look at some of the descriptive information here and descriptive statistics, uh, there was also a notable difference between the, the ratings of these apps when you look at different platforms. And so for instance, the average Apple uh, platform rating for these apps is around 4.7, uh, whereas in Android, it was 4.5. Um, so that was interesting to note. Uh, the average cost of these apps was around $63. Um, but we also did have some apps that costed significantly more than others. 
uh, considerably Noom and Weight Watchers. Uh, so Noom was around $200 for an annual subscription. Uh, Weight Watchers a little more around $220. Uh, so when we account for those, uh, the average app for any, the average cost of an app for an annual subscription was around $40. Uh, so nearly half of the apps in the, the Apple Platform Store were ranked uh, in the health and fitness category. Um, and so this just kind of identifies these apps as significant and, and something that users were interested in, uh, uh, users were interested in actually taking a look at and actually utilizing for themselves. Um, There's also an app that was awarded the editor's designation, editor's choice designation, uh, which is kind of just like an, an award that basically says that in this category, uh, this app is really good as far as satisfying all of the uh, important things that this an app in this category would use. So uh, for the health and fitness category, um, one of these apps, I believe, uh, was LifeSum, was uh, awarded the editor's choice um, in the Apple platform. When we look at the presence or absence of some of the core dietary features, uh, specifically looking at macronutrient tracking in some of these apps here, um, we can see here calorie tracking, of course, was, was very prominent among all the apps, as well as having access to a nutritional database. So these two kind of go hand in hand here. Uh, as we go further down the list, there there's, we start to see some discrepancies in what's available between some of these apps. Uh, and so some of these apps uh, have image recognition where you're able to take a picture of your food, scan it, and have it kind of uh, essentially be able to uh, analyze that food and say, this is how many calories this is, this is the size of it. Um, so technology has become a bit more widespread, I think, now compared to when we first did this study. Uh, a lot of these apps did have the ability to import a recipe from online. So if, you were, if the user was interested in using a recipe from maybe like Food Network or maybe another popular cook or chef that they were, um, they were looking at and they were able to import that recipe directly into the app that way. Um, <clears throat> Uh, water tracking was also something that we found in these apps as well, as well as energy intake recommendations, uh, which is actually pretty significant. So as we saw, some of these apps didn't recommend any kind of energy goals until you actually purchase, purchase a subscription. Uh, so MyFitnessPal was one of them, uh, also Noom and, and Weight Watchers also. You had to purchase a subscription in order to, uh, to kind of get those recommendations. Uh, <clears throat> One of the other interesting things we saw in this uh, was that at the time when we were evaluating these studies, um, Noom and Weight Watchers were not available uh, in their free versions. So you had to purchase the app outright and purchase a subscription in order to evaluate. Uh, and so that is why all of the, the features here for Noom and Weight Watchers are listed as IAP. Uh, we did recognize that there are certain times when these promotions are, are offered. And so there are certain times when Noom and Weight Watchers uh, do have a promotion going on where they allow uh, users who might be interested in the app to look to use the app free of charge. Uh, unfortunately, at the time of this study, uh, that was not the case. And so that explains why we saw all of our, our, our features here for Noom uh, and Weight Watchers as, in, as defined as in-app purchase, essentially. Moving on to the macronutrients we see here, uh, again, a large swath of these aren't available for most apps until you purchase a, a subscription. And so uh, by this, we're looking at individualized nutrient targeting. So kind of making a tweak in the number of protein or carbohydrates or fats that an individual might want to um, stick to as far as kind of diet prescriptions and in individualizing your diet. Um, so you're not allowed to do that in most apps until you purchase uh, purchased a subscription to that app. Um, but we do see here that once you do purchase a subscription, you are able to track a, a, a load number of, of different mac, uh, macronutrients. So you're able to type uh, track fiber, added sugar, cholesterol, total fat, uh, saturated fat. And so um, one of these, as we look at some of the things you're able to track, it does look like, or it seemed like to us when we were doing this study that this is probably one of the driving motivations that allowed or, or forced people to, to eventually purchase an app um, when they wanted to use an app for, for that macronutrient tracking, if that was their goal. When we look at the presence or absence of behavior change strategies, uh, similarly here for, for Newman Weight Watchers, again, none of these features were available in their free versions. And so that is why we have everything listed here as an in-app purchase, 
Um, Self-monitoring was found throughout all of the apps, just given the functional nature of these apps. Um, all of this is self-reported by the user. And so uh, being that there's a self-reported element here, there is also an element of self-monitoring as well. Uh, some of these apps did have information, uh, whether it was in the form of blogs um, or just outside external information that helped to manage stress. Uh, and so we did include that as, a, as part of our analysis here. Um, <clears throat> Social support was also uh, found in these apps. So a lot of these apps have uh, forums and communities that allow users to either communicate and swap recipes, discuss different strategies for managing weight. Um, and so we categorize that as, as social support. Um, apps did also allow for goal setting and goal progression. Um, <clears throat> and there was also motivational messages found in a lot of these apps as well. Uh, so we define motivational messaging as in-app messages that kind of promoted the user to say, hey, have you tracked your food today? Or, hey, did you track your water today? Or, great job, you lost two pounds this week. Uh, and so those kind of motivational messages were uh, counted in this analysis. Uh, and as we look at the, the correlation matrix here uh, that we did in our study here, we wanted to look and see if there were any correlations between uh, some of the app metadata that we've collected and some of the, the features categories that we analyzed. Uh, and so some significant correlations that we saw uh, included uh, significant correlations between macronutrient um, tracking and uh, app rating. And so we suspected that this was likely because as users were able to track more information, they, they found the app more useful and thus the uh, app scored a higher rating. Uh, another one we actually saw was between uh, subscription cost and uh, total features which made sense as well. The more features you have in your app, uh, the more kind of technology you're pulling into this, the more um, systems that you're pulling into be able to, to have more features, uh, it likely increases the cost of these apps. Uh, and so we, we figured that that made at least some logical sense in that analysis there. Macronutrient uh, tracking was also highly associated with subscription cost. And so we actually, suggested here that maybe this perhaps macronutrients was the driving factor, one of the main driving factors for subscription costs as you're able to track more macronutrients, uh, things like added sugar, cholesterol, uh, saturated fat, sodium, uh, things and nutrients that are more or less uh, a concern for chronic disease uh, that people might want to know about. Um, we figured that might be influencing the cost of apps as well. Uh, and then our last association we saw was between uh, core behavior change strategies and uh, motivational interviewing, uh, which was just by association. If you have uh, the more behavior change you probably have in an app, it's likely that you probably have some motivational interviewing techniques that are being utilized in the app as well. <clears throat> and so as we go into our conclusion uh, and implication here, this study showed that there were a number of features that were available throughout the apps. Uh, most of these were dedicated to diet intake, uh, anthropometric and physical activity, uh, but there was a significant aspect of, of the apps that were devoid of behavior change content. And despite apps that we saw that are, uh, or that we at least know of that to be primarily marketed as behavior change systems. So uh, things like Noom and or apps like Noom and Weight Watchers that, that pride themselves on not just being a, a diet app or a diet system, but more so uh, systems that help you to actually change the way you think about food. Noom has, for, uh, for instance, has a, a red light, green light, yellow light system for food where they actually grade food, uh, food choices. Uh, using that kind of a, a system there and Weight Watchers has points. Uh, so despite looking at these two apps, we did see that there was a lack of associated behavior change content here as well. Um, secondly, interpreting associations between uh, macronutrient tracking and app data. Uh, while we noted that there are some, there might be some explaining that uh, macronutrient tracking has on uh, things like metadata, like, like cost of an app, we did recognize that there are likely other attributes that are likely driving um, things like cost as well and, and other ratings uh, of an app. So attributes such as um, user experience, aesthetics, uh, user interface, how well an app actually operates, um, whether the app crashes or not, these are all things that kind of funnel into uh, 
how a user rates an app. And so we, we recognize that we can't just say that macronutrient tracking is, um, is a significant driver or driving even uh, a large portion of some of the app metadata correlations that we saw there. And lastly, uh, we did notice that um, overall, this kind of drive towards individualizing diets and the, the way that we, the way that these apps kind of tease certain features, but then you had to purchase a feature or purchase um, a subscription in order to uh, to get the, the prefla of the macronutrient tracking. Uh, we did kind of see that this might likely explain the consumer desires for individualizing diets. Um, and so we've seen that as these apps get more intricate, users are expecting more of these apps. They want them to track more things. They want them to be able to give them more insight into some specialized dietary approaches. Um, and just overall suggesting a growing interest and more personalized, individualized nutrition experiences. Um, so some overall conclusions and implications I'd like to note. Um, and so most smartphone diet and nutrition apps contain a prefla of functions uh, that are dedicated towards dietary tracking, um, however, fall short of behavior change recommendations and evidence-based recommendations in a lot of apps. And so when we ask ourselves this kind of famous question of whether there's an app for that or not, um, it's a really complicated question. Uh, so a lot of the research that I've done has shown that there's not really a clear cut answer to whether there is an app that is great for weight loss, um, whether you follow it or not. Um, we do see that there is some potential for some of these apps to enhance aspects of the nutrition care process. Again, whether that is uh, particularly in the assessment aspect of that, where you're taking in a lot of anthropometric information, a lot of dietary intake information, um, and it also might be useful in the nutrition intervention aspect of the care process where you are actually uh, actively guiding someone's intervention. Uh, app technology can be part of that solution. And so when we kind of dug a little deeper into this question and looked at whether uh, there's an app that is best for uh, certain aspects of the care process, um, it does stand to, to reason that there might be some apps that are basically better for certain aspects of the behavior change process. And so when we think about, for instance, the trans-theoretical model uh, of behavior change uh, and, the, and the steps and levels within there, there might actually be some apps that are better for people who are first starting out um, and trying to lose weight who may not have the awareness, for instance, that they actually need to lose weight. Um, there might be better apps that are better suited for those who are at maintenance. Uh, there might be apps that are better suited for people who are in that action phase where they are ready and motivated for change. Uh, and so that's something that is also still yet to be explored with these apps. As far as some implications go, um, <clears throat> diet and nutrition apps are not yet capable of replacing uh, nutrition professionals and dietitians, thankfully, so we still have jobs. Uh, <laughs> however, uh, it does not mean that we should ignore that the majority of individuals who elect to use these apps do so without the guidance of trained professionals. And, and this is a problem um, because there are people who might have really grand expectations for using these apps um, that are not grounded in reality. Um, and so, for instance, uh, some of these apps allow a user to set unrealistic weight loss goals. Um, so one app in particular that I won't name allowed a user to set a, a calorie deficit of 700 calories and allowed them to only consume 1,100 calories a day, which we know is not really sustainable, no matter what kind of, you know, state uh, or dietary nutrient state you're at. Um, and so there are some, some calls for action for dietitians to at least be educated and, and be aware of these tools and, and be aware of some of their shortcomings in order to better guide um, consumers who are using these apps. There's also a lot of opportunities to explore additional research and looking at ways that these tools can be further personalized for weight management interventions um, and better suited for behavior change efforts. Uh, and then lastly, there's also a concern for data privacy. So as these apps become more and more popular, the more and more information that's shared in these apps, uh, it should be noted that we probably do need to start thinking about um, regulations and legal protections for these apps for consumers uh, and so that their information is protected. Um, and with that, that is the, the close of my presentation. Um, I did have an acknowledgement slide here, but I don't think I put it in this version of it. So I do want to thank uh, my collaborators and co-authors for this paper, uh, Dr. Virginia, Virginia Quick, as well as Dr. William K. Hallman, who uh, helped in the uh, 
in helping me uh, conceptualize this idea and this research project. Um, and I also like to thank all the app reviewers as well as, uh, and I'd also like to thank the Journal of Nutrition Education and Behavior for, for, uh, for publishing this work and for inviting me to talk about it today. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Dr. Briggs. It's been great to hear about this work. Um, as people have questions, if you can type that into the Q&A box, I can moderate those out to Dr. Briggs. So the first question um, that I have, as you, you mentioned that when you gave the apps to different uh, reviewers, you said you gave a low burden of review, medium burden of review, and high burden of review to each person. How did you determine low, medium, and high? Yeah, so that's a great question. So. I distinctively remember for, for certain apps, um, and this was based upon how we kind of went through all the apps um, beforehand, before we assigned them. So one of the things that we looked at when we were looking at whether an app was, was low burden, medium burden, or high burden, um, was basically what was presented on that front screen and whether there was a lot of information presented, or whether there was a lot of tabs you had to go through on an app, because um, essentially we were just looking at basically the ability to look at dietary information um, and dietary intake. Uh, and so the more information an app presented, the more a user or a reviewer had to go through. We, we kind of graded our, our graded our apps on a burden review based on that. Yeah, thank you. Another question, did all of the apps that you analyzed include physical activity, goal development, and tracking? Most of them did. Um, so with physical activity goals, some of them did allow you to, to set a, a calorie uh, burn goal or calorie expenditure goal for the day. Um, but it wasn't something that was found throughout most of the apps. I, I distinctively note my fitness pal being one of the apps that does that very well, um, lose it to an extent as well, um, but not many others. Okay. And then um, as far as app features, you uh, assess them as being present or not present. Did you find any variation within apps where maybe a feature was present, but how did you determine like, is this weekly present or is this strong present? Or did you just, was it just a straight yes, no? So we did have a, a criteria um, that we defined as far as whether something was really, really present or whether it was just kind of like weekly present as you stated. Um, and so we defined all of those in a, in a manual that we gave to all of our reviewers. So we were able to have them kind of grade whether what features they saw there and really try to kind of tease out whether something was really there or not. And whether there was a, when, there was a, when there was a discrepancy between whether something was really there or not, um, we left it as not, we didn't know we're unsure. And then we came back to when we were able to correctly verify whether it was there. And then a follow-up to a previous question, did you measure correlation between app burden and satisfaction? Good question. No, we, we actually didn't do that. Um, yeah, we, we didn't do that, but that would be a, a really good, interesting take uh, between looking at the burden of, of how much you had to review an app or the, um, how much a, a user would be satisfied with an app. We, in our letter, later studies, though, we did start doing some things like that, and we did kind of see that the more the uh, the more features that a user had at their disposal for an app, um, the lower the this rating ranking uh, rating of the app actually was in the app store, um, which was interesting to see. I think that we saw that in our our second study, we were looking at adherence to dietary guidelines. So more features meant less satisfaction. Yeah, interestingly enough, okay. and one of the reasons why we probably thought that this was the case was because it probably just overburdened the, the user. There was just so much stuff to use um, that they just didn't want to be bothered with the app anymore. And so yeah. between these studies, we did see that there is a, a demand for, for certain features or a certain number of features, but we don't want too much where it overburdens us. It makes us feel like we're there's too much to, to look at in this app. Yeah, that's so fascinating because I would expect there to be like almost a curve where people's like too low of features, people wouldn't like it, too many people wouldn't like it. I wonder if there's a sweet spot in the yeah. middle, but yeah. And then um, the person who asked that question says, thank you. Is the paper with the correlation between number of features and low satisfaction available yet? It is not available yet. I am in the process of, of getting that one published. Okay. <laughs> so as soon well, as it comes out. 
I'm excited to read that one. <laughs> I, I'm sure there's other people here who are as well. Um, so another question. So you mentioned that like Weight Watchers and Noom were much higher costs, significantly higher costs than some of the other apps. Did that cost include the Weight Watchers program or additional um, additional value beyond just the app? Or was that just the cost for the app for those two? Well, I believe the, the Weight Watchers app also included access to the program as well. Okay. Um, and then for, for Noom, I believe that one was just because it was, they had, so those of you who are not familiar with Noom, Noom has coaches that are, that are also part of that app as well. And so I believe that likely drives the cost of the app, whereas some of these other apps are just essentially standalone nutrient mm-hmm. trackers that don't necessarily have anybody or any coaches, any professionals inputting any information. Well, Dr. Briggs, I think that's all the questions we have for today. I want to thank you again for joining us. I know I learned a lot. It's always great to to hear from people about the work they've done. And I, I feel that this was a really informative webinar. So thank you so much for sharing your research with us. At this point, I can hand it back to Rachel. Thank yes, you. My thank yeah, thank you for the presentation. Uh, just a reminder, there'll be a short survey when I close the webinar, and we appreciate your feedback on this session as well as ideas for other sessions. Um, watch for an email on Wednesday with a link to the recording, uh, your CEU certificate, as well as um, the handout included. Um, I was going to say, I just saw something in the chat, so it caught my eye. Um, just a reminder, Journal Club will be back next Monday. Um, so go ahead and go to the SNEB website to register for um, upcoming Journal Club webinars, uh, especially ones in the digital technology series. And then um, annual conference registration did open last week, a little bit of a soft launch. Um, so if you're interested in attending SNEB's conference uh, in Washington, D.C. this summer, uh, there are a lot of registration options this year. I mean, if you're one day, two day, three days, full conference, um, take a look at um, the, we only have a draft schedule kind of available at this point. Um, we anticipate the full conference schedule within about two weeks. Uh, so just a heads up that that's out there. So thank you all for attending today and we will see you back online soon.